Hello again, everyone, and welcome to The InDesigner, the podcast that provides information, instruction, and insight for designers using and learning Adobe InDesign. I'm your host, Michael Murphy, graphic designer and Adobe certified expert in InDesign CS2, and this is episode 27, an InDesign inventory. If you noticed there weren't many podcasts from me in July, that's because I recently put to bed a 256-page issue of my magazine. That breaks down for me personally as four full-page ads, 19 charts, and graphs, and 123 page layouts in 24 working days. This was a huge and difficult undertaking, but working on this issue was an opportunity to put any number of InDesign features to work, so I decided that for this episode I'd do an InDesign inventory of different techniques and features that help me get through a big project like this. So instead of a start-to-finish tutorial on one topic, this is going to be a big-picture look at how a number of different features all come together to help in a large project. So, let me take you for a look inside my magazine. We're not going to go through every page, I'll just stop when I get to something that I want to show you. And here's our first example. This one's on page 48, and I call it the booby-trapped style. To speed up the formatting of this sidebar, I use InDesign's Find Change to clean up the word formatting applied to it by the editors, and to achieve consistent spacing around the white separator bullets and trigger the nested style that makes them white bullets in the first place. When this text is placed in this frame from the original Word file, the object style applied to this frame ensures that my base style is automatically applied along with any next style instructions. But this text comes in with ellipses where I want bullets, and those bullets will need to have a nested style triggered when they're in there. So here's what I do. Using the find change function, I put an ellipse in the find what field, then in the change to field I put in an end space, a lowercase n, and another end space, which will give me the character needed for my square bullet, surrounded by end spaces on either side. Now, I could have it apply a specific character style by clicking More Options and using the Change Format Setting Options. I could just use the Character Style menu to choose the white bullet character style, and InDesign would apply that style while executing the Find Change operation. But I'm not going to do that. I'll cancel this setting, and let's see what happens when I just click Change All. So far, so good. It's found and replaced four instances in my place text. Let's take a look at what I've got now. I've got white bullets. How did that happen? Well, to figure that out, we'll have to look at the paragraph style itself. In the drop caps and nested style options, I've put in the following instructions. Use none, in other words, apply nothing, through one end space, and then use white bullet through one other end space, then back to none, and so on, repeating the pattern about seven or eight times. Why didn't I just opt to apply the character style in the find change process? Here's why. If I select this end space and instead put in a regular space, look how screwed up all my formatting is from that point on. I want end spaces and only end spaces surrounding my white bullets to maintain even spacing. I built this style so that if those end spaces are accidentally or deliberately replaced in the editing process, it will break the style, and there's no way I'm going to miss a formatting error this obvious. Basically, I've booby-trapped the formatting so that it will only work right and look right if it's done right all the way through. Let's keep moving along until we find something else we want. And here it is. This is page 58. I call this Accents for Your Table. Here's an InDesign table that uses custom-anchored objects to create these circular accents at the joins where row and column strokes meet. 
This is a simple InDesign shape that was cut and pasted before the text in one cell, moved into the proper position, and then copied and pasted into the same position again and again. Let's take a quick look at the settings for this anchored object. I'll make sure Preview is checked first. Notice the reference point for the object is its center. If I change that reference point to the right edge, notice the object moves. And the same applies if I change the reference point to the left edge. But the center is what I want, so I'll keep it there. Down in the anchored position area, I have another reference point also set to the center of either side of the spread. As before, changing that position reference point will move the object to the right or to the left relative to the text frame in which it's placed. The X position has a specified offset value, and the Y position is relative to the line of text into which it was pasted, also with an offset that's going to put the anchored object right where I want it. We're going to cover anchored objects in another episode, so I'm not going to go into great detail here right now, I'm just throwing out some general ideas. These dialog box options can be a bit confusing, so I prefer to position my objects manually the first time around, which automatically sets those offset values that you saw. This is a variation of the technique covered in episode 20, the third part of the table series, so if you're new to the podcast, check that one out. In that episode, I used the same technique with triangles in a different location on the cell border, but it's all the same trick, and when applied right, it creates a nice and different-looking table. Alright, let's keep going through and see what else we find. Ah, here we are, page 80, what I call Tiny Table Tabs. This feature had a series of case histories that are called out as sidebars and all use this little vertically oriented black and red bar as a consistent design element. Each of these little accent bars is actually a table, made up of two rows and one column. The case history text is rotated within the bottom row so that it runs vertically up the cell. This meant that I didn't have to rotate the table itself. Since I'm using this table to offset the text next to it with a text wrap, the fact that it isn't rotated is very helpful. When I apply a text wrap to the bottom, it's actually applied to the bottom of the table. If it was rotated, the bottom would be the right, and the right would be the top, and the left would be the bottom, which can get annoyingly confusing, especially when you're busy. This way, when I want some extra offset space in the text wrap on the right, I can actually apply it to the right side. And because it's a table, I can move it as a single object without having to group anything. I told you I was going to move quickly through this, so let's keep going and see what we find next. Aha! How's this for a complex, crowded layout? This is pages 106 through 111, and it has everything including the kitchen sink in it. I wish I could say that InDesign made this a push-button exercise for me, but I spent more than 20 hours on just these three spreads, balancing out all this text and all of these images. But I'll tell you what I didn't have to do, and that's create any clipping paths for any of these images, whether they fall on a white background, a colored background, or whether or not text wraps around them. The 3D pool table, the beer glass, these styled numbers, this car, the Xbox controller, the DVD player, the insulation, the earth-moving equipment, the lawnmower, or the planks of wood. I avoided clipping paths for all of these silhouetted images thanks to InDesign support for native Photoshop files and transparency. I used much faster, easier, and more natural-looking Photoshop methods for silhouetting objects than clipping paths, and I could drop them right into my layout. That's not the only way InDesign helped me get through this. It goes without saying that paragraph and character styles shaved a tremendous amount of time off of the text formatting, as did object styles for things like these rounded corner case studies, for which I was able to apply text insets, stroke weight and color, 
rounded corners, drop shadow settings, and the appropriate paragraph styles all with a single click. And can you spot where the tables in this layout are? It's kind of a Where's Waldo challenge, I know, but here's where the tables are. These corner bracketed headers for the satisfied customer and word from the top blurbs are all two row, one column tables. The text is in the top row with no spacing in the cell to allow it to touch the stroke on the top of the cell beneath it. On that cell, there are strokes on the top and left sides only. The same goes for this table, but the vertical stroke is applied to the right side instead of the left. I use tables here so that I could extend or pull back these rules quickly and easily and move the whole thing as a single object, rather than as a text frame, a horizontal rule, and a vertical rule. Across all three spreads, that meant I only had to deal with 36 tables instead of 108 separate objects. Finally, these three spreads would have been almost impossible to manage if I hadn't taken advantage of layers. As the spreads grew more and more complex, layers helped me keep sane when organizing the hundreds of objects on them. I could toggle layers on and off, lock and unlock them as necessary, whatever it took to work without making myself crazy. Not only did working on this issue take a long time, talking about it is going to require another episode, so stay tuned for the continuation of an InDesign inventory in episode 28. As always, I welcome your comments on the blog at www.theindesigner.com, as well as your emails to info at theindesigner.com, or look for me on AIM or iChat as The InDesigner. Until next time, this is Michael Murphy for the InDesigner video podcast. Thanks for watching. Thank you.